Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the Cobb. So we are headed back to persuasion in this episode. And the scene in question for today, we have Anne visiting her sister and the Musgroves at Uppercross when Captain Wentworth mentions that he will be visiting some of his Navy buddies in the nearby coastal town of Lyme Regis. And her sister Mary, Charles, Louisa, and Henrietta all travel to Lyme with him. You gotta hand it to the Musgroves. Like, they're very good at getting themselves invited to parties. (laughs) If they want to be there, they will be there. (laughs) There, the group gets to enjoy the town and its signature harbor feature, the Cobb. I said that like kind of ominous, you know, dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So we're going to set the scene here with when the group first arrives at Lyme. And here's, here's the description that we get. After securing accommodations and ordering a dinner at one of the inns, the next thing to be done was unquestionably to walk directly down to the sea. They were come too late in the year for any amusement or variety which Lyme as a public place might offer. The rooms were shut up, the lodgers almost all gone, scarcely any family but of the residents left. And as there's nothing to admire in the buildings themselves, the remarkable situation of the town, the principal street almost hurrying into the water, the walk to the Cobb, skirting around the pleasant little bay, which in the season is animated with bathing machines and company, the Cobb itself, its old wonders and new improvements, with the very beautiful line of cliffs stretching out to the east of the town, are what the stranger's eye will seek. And a very strange stranger it must be, who does not see charms, in the immediate environs of Lyme to make him wish to know it better. Austin is full out, like, in love with this space, the way that she's describing it. it. She is very into it. She doesn't usually give us a whole lot of scenery, but she is like, this place is charming. Do you not get it? She's like, this is basically my application to write for the tourism board. That's exactly what it feels like. Chamber of Commerce, use this, please. BT dubs, this place is great. Yes, five stars would visit again. (laughs) So if you're wondering, what is this cob? I mean, I'm trying so hard not to make corn jokes. It's really, it's really difficult for me. So if you are wondering what the cob is, the cob is a man-made jetty and breakwater essentially creating and sheltering the harbor in Lyme Regis, or just Lyme as Austin refers to it. The cob is an old structure dating back at least into the early 1300s, possibly even as early as 1254. So it's been around. Originally, the structure was made of large oak piles driven into the seabed and then built up and supported by piles of stones. It's a curved structure that kind of protects the resulting harbor from the really big waves and storms coming from the ocean that could destroy boats and homes along the coast. Yeah, it's really protecting this harbor. And and we kind of get a sense of that because the first written mention that we have of the Cobb is in 1328. And it's it's actually in a document that mentions that the Cobb was damaged by storms. So we know that it was actually really significant. So when there was damage, they had to document it and kind of fix things. We also know that the cob was swept away by a severe storm in 1377, and it actually destroyed something like 50 boats and 80 houses. So so this the structure of the cob is like, Lyme Regis doesn't really exist without it, because it's the only thing that's keeping this coastal town protected from this massive force from the sea. And it's also um, because, because the cob creates a harbor, it's also part of the reason for the town's success as a trade and naval port. And according to Richard Bull, a museum researcher for the Lyme Regis Museum, we do not know what the Cobb looked like before 1539 when it was the same size as today, but without later pier extensions. Since at least then, it has always been on the line of the arc of today's 645-foot-long high wall and 300-foot-long landing key. And key is spelled Q-U-A-Y, in case you were wondering. (laughs) 
it's it's something that I have mispronounced like live to other people who knew how to pronounce it when I lived in Ireland and people looked at me like, you silly American, that's key. <laughs> and continuing on with this quote from Richard Bull, the natural basin in the ledges dictates its size and shape. The oldest part of the cob still standing may date from about 1550 and most of the principal breakwater visible today was built between 1785 and 1826. So obviously that's right around when, when Austin was visiting. This is when, when Austin is writing as well. So basically, if you go and visit Lyme Regis today, you're, you'll be seeing the same... Basic structure, yeah. Yeah, you'll be seeing the same cob that she saw. Mm-hmm. There have been improvements and things since then, but it's like, I mean, it's the essential parts of the cob are, are what she saw. The cob, as we see it today, has three main components. First, and this is the furthest away from the harbor, there's a rock jetty at the furthest point, and it's literally just rocks piled out into the sea. So you can't walk on this. This isn't, you know, a part that people would, would actually go out to. It's just a pile of rocks protecting the bay. The second part is called the lower cob, which is a really wide walkway that connects that rocky jetty all the way out there, all the way back to the beach. So that's kind of the main walking thoroughfare. But the third part is the upper cob, which is also a walkway, but it's something like six and a half feet higher than the lower cob. And the upper cob is on the side closest to the sea. So that means that it serves as the highest built up portion of the sea break. And so during calm weather, it's actually... It's the most logical place to walk because it's absolutely stunning 360 views of the area. It's just breathtaking. So that's where most people would go if they were doing sightseeing during calm weather. But during stormy weather or windy weather, you would want to come off from the upper cob down to the lower cob in a hurry because the stones up there are smooth-ish and there's a slight slope in towards the harbor. So like you just don't want to mess around up there. Like it's, it's actually a somewhat dangerous place during stormy weather. You would definitely want to be wearing shoes that are like, you know, have good grip. Good grip, yes. <laughs> Lyme Regis also has a long history as a trade town. So the town was most prosperous from the 16th century until the end of the 18th century. And as recently as 1780, it was actually larger than Liverpool. The town declined as a major port after this, since there was little space or possibility for expanding the harbor to accommodate more trade. So the southern arm of the Cobb was added in the 1690s, and then it was rebuilt in, the seven, in 1793 following its destruction in a storm. Like there was plenty of storms that came in there and did destruction to the Cobb, and they had to kind of rebuild and rebuild. But because of this major construction that was happening in 1793, that's when Austin, Austin goes on to describe the Cobb a little bit more, and she actually describes it as the new improvements. Um, so she's referring to the improvements that happened after this massive storm, and that's the big starting of the construction of the Cobb and, and rebuilding up that protection from the sea. So in Lyme, shipbuilding becomes a particularly significant industry for Lyme as a town because uh, between 1780 and 1850, they had around 100 ships that, launch, that launched from Lyme including a 12-gun Royal Navy brig called HMS Snap, which I, I just kind of love that name, Snap. And this also explains why the Harvels and Bennick are actually based in Lyme, in Persuasion, since there's actually a significant naval presence there. And it's also important to acknowledge that in the 18th century, these port cities were almost always involved in the transatlantic slave trade in some way or another. According to the Lyme Regis Museum, the 18th century ports of Dorset were involved with the slave trade, with ships from Poole, Weymouth, and Lyme Regis making the vast journeys across the Atlantic from Africa to the West Indies. For example, and this is also from the Lyme Regis Museum, the Burridge family of Lyme used many ports for their ships, including London and Liverpool, but some of their African voyages left from Lyme Regis. For example, in 1713, their ship, John Frigate, set off from Lyme on a mammoth voyage, calling at Ireland, Barbados, America, returning to Africa, and then back to Barbados with 91 enslaved people. The ship stayed in the Caribbean for several months before returning to Lyme after a voyage, which lasted three years. 
I think it's so important for us to acknowledge that the history of these port towns and that, and that Lyme isn't excused from this. It's something that, that as, as a country, that there's some acknowledgement of responsibility there. I think it's all too common to kind of gloss over those kind of aspects when you're reading these books, but this is something that would have definitely been a reality of these ports, you know, during this time period. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the geography of the area as well. So, so the coast around Lyme has often experienced really large landslips along its cliffs. And so it actually, in those landslips, it's exposed a lot of Jurassic Age fossils. So there's, there's a large interest in Dorset as like a, a geological and fossil-based location. It's actually called the Jurassic Coast. One of the most significant landslips in regard to fossil finds happened in the 1820s. But even in Austin's time, there would have been small fossils that you could have, find, could have found on the beaches. One of the most prevalent and common forms of fossils is the ammonite, which is kind of like the, the nautilus shell kind of shape. And they actually have incorporated in modern lime, they've incorporated this ammonite design into like street lamps, into like some of the staircases around the, the beach. Like it's, it's incorporated throughout the town. They've really embraced that they're Jurassic Coast people, but also that they are coastal. That, so that nautilus shape is kind of central to the way that Lyme builds itself today. If you're a tourist town... Yeah. You got to work with us. Oh, sure. Got. Yeah. <laughs> so. We are Ammonite design based. This is all reminding me of, and I'm sure you have all been missing my signature segment, where does this show up in historical romance novels? <laughs> because, yeah, this is definitely a thing. Lime reaches specifically, actually, but also other coastal locations. Mm-hmm. I've definitely read many a book where this features, you know, just pair an intrepid lady geologist <laughs> with a brooding duke and you've got yourself a party. That's all you really need to know. So Lyme Regis, you know, those Ammonites are the key to love, really. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> the Jurassic Coast will unlock the key to your heart. <laughs> so Lyme was and still is a popular seaside resort. During the summer, the sea is relatively calm in Lyme, which made it a popular sea bathing town during the Georgian period. And we'll definitely be doing an entire episode um, on sea bathing and sea bathing machines and all that at some point in the future. So we won't go into it now. But this is why in the passage we read, there is mention that they are come too late in the year for any amusement or variety which Lyme as a public place might offer. It's too cold to go sea bathing. During the winter months, Lyme was equally known for hefty storms, which could do some real damage. Hence the multiple accounts of the cob being damaged and restructured even as recently as 2014. So it's definitely like a good summer locale. Yeah. You could probably get some really good rates in the off season, though. You know, just think about Definitely. it. Definitely. If, if stormy weather is like your mood, go for it. <laughs> Again, Lime Reaches Tourism Board, give us a call. Right. We have all your ad copy ready for you. <laughs> and in Persuasion, since we know that the Musgroves and Anne are visiting in the fall, it's logical that during their walks, they're noticing that the wind is becoming uncomfortable on the top of the cob. So it's like, I mean, it's seasonally accurate. And this is also really beautifully captured in the 2007 Persuasion adaptation when the group is actually yet at Lyman, and they do actually capture some of that stormy weather. One of the best examples of this actually is when Wentworth has returned to Lyme after he's trying to create distance between himself and Louisa. And he's all angsty while he's talking to Harville. And he's trying to reconcile like, oh, I have to marry Louisa. And Harville's like, no, 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 dude, she's, Louisa's engaged. While all of that is going on, there's this storm that's just absolutely tossing water everywhere, all over the actors. They're soaked. It's a very good place to have some emo moments, <laughs> which which definitely is happening here with, with Captain Wentworth. But it might also be why why Benick was so happy there, right? To just like go get soaked on the cob. It's while reciting poetry seems like seems like an appropriate thing to do. My Benny boy definitely approves. I love it. <laughs> 
Lime is also where we see Anne Elliot essentially come back to life in some ways. You know, in our spinster episode, we talk about how she's described as having lost her looks and bloom at the ripe old age of 27. Mm -hmm. I will never be over talking about that. Yeah, it always bears repeating. <laughs> and yet when she comes to Lime, she gains confidence in herself. She gains back some of her beauty. You know, the wind just like really whips those, ro those roses into her cheeks. Yeah. And, you know, the gentlemen, they all take notice of it. Yeah. One of the best scenes to kind of to kind of describe this is when she she kind of comes across Mr. Elliot on an unknowingly on the cob. When they came to the steps leading upward from the beach, a gentleman at the same moment preparing to come down politely drew back and stopped to give them way. They ascended and passed him, and as they passed, Anne's face caught his eye, and he looked at her with a degree of earnest admiration, which she could not be insensible of. She was looking remarkably well. Her very regular, very pretty features having the bloom and freshness of youth restored by the fine wind which had been blowing on her complexion, and by the animation of eye which it had also produced. It was evident that the gentleman, completely a gentleman in manner, admired her exceedingly. Captain Wentworth looked around at her instantly in a way which showed <laughs> his noticing of it. He gave her a momentary glance, a glance of brightness, which seemed to say, that man is struck with you, and even I at this moment see something like Anne Elliot again. Okay, Captain Wentworth. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. You're like, all right, you're looking pretty hot again. Also, this other dude is checking you out. <laughs> I see this. I see what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's such a delightful description. <laughs> I love how Austin doesn't try to write it that Anne is just, you know, that heroine who has no, no idea, idea how pretty exactly. she is. Anna's like, yeah, I know. I look good right now. <laughs> this wind is really working for me. She's got a wind machine blowing her hair around like in a shampoo commercial. <laughs> It's perfect. Very much so. Need to recapture your beauty and bloom? Head to Lyme Regis. <laughs> Looking to recapture the loveliness of your lapsed looks? Head to Lyme Regis. Bloom and bow restored. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> See, we've got all the copy that we need here. We've got so much material. It's fun to think that Austin may be sort of paying homage to the sea as a restorative mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. You know, she's really giving Anne this time to shine, really making her the center of attention of all these admirers. And especially because once the crisis with Louisa occurs, she really steps up and becomes this like force for reason and calm that really makes Wentworth remember like, oh, this is also why I was into you. Yeah. Yeah. She's in control and, and it's really the strongest moment for her. She is like an ER nurse mm -hmm. in this moment. Yeah. She's doing full on triage here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that is why Wentworth has to look at her again, you know, and, and from here on out, like he's like, oh Yeah. There's a lot of things that I really do admire about Anne, and it has nothing yeah. to do with the looks. Although, that's a perk, you know, having yeah. come from Lyme Regis. Hey, babe, it's a perk that you're looking good again, but I just want you to know that I'm so into you that even <laughs> if you still looked like a haggard old crone, I'd still love you. So we are going to talk a little bit about Louisa's fall from the cob. So content warning for that. We aren't going to go into the medical side of her injury or her recovery in this episode, since we'll actually be discussing that at some point in the future, but we are just going to kind of cover it at a very high level. Yeah, here. yeah kind of location-wise, why this is significant. So I'm going to read the portion of the text where, where they're on the cob and then Louisa has her fall. There was too much wind to make the high part of the new cob pleasant for the ladies, which again, that makes sense now that you know a little bit more about the location here. And they agreed to get down the steps to the lower and all were contented to pass quietly and carefully down the steep flight, excepting Louisa. She must be jumped down them by Captain Wentworth. In all their walks, he had jumped her from the stiles. The sensation was delightful to her. The hardness of the pavement for her feet made him less willing upon the present occasion. He did, however. 
she was safely down and instantly, to show her enjoyment, ran up the steps to be jumped down again. He advised her against it, thought the jar too great, but no, he reasoned and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement on the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. Can I just say that that is like such a dramatic way to talk about this? I mean, taken up lifeless, it's like, boom. Yeah. As we have established more than once, I'm not great with adaptations, but I would (laughs) guess, I would guess, please write in if you know differently. I would guess that this basically never gets cut from a film adaptation because it is like a cinematic moment. Yes. I think in the 95 adaptation, they actually even like, it's a slow motion fall it's muted sounds you hear like seagulls like it's incredibly artistic and then it's like oh gosh that the sound is even jarring not just the visuals so which steps she fell from is slightly contentious since there are actually three sets of stairs on the cob today the first set of stairs is a double stair like a pyramid this however is the least likely set of stairs on the cob for the scene since a plaque right next to them indicates that they were part of the 1826 repairs. So it could be the same spot, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't be those wouldn't exact be those stairs. exact stairs, exactly. And this is the set of stairs that's used in the 1971 film adaptation of Persuasion. It's the only one that, that I know of that uses that uses this particular stairs, probably because it's one of the easiest ones to kind of rule out as authentic. The second set of stairs that's kind of like the runner-up for the position of which one is this, you know, contestant number two is a set of stairs called the Granny's Teeth, which, you know, in its own right is a hilarious name and memorable and makes me love it just from out of the gate, right? That is the name of a terrifying cottage in the woods. Exactly. Where, like, an old crone is going to like cook you into a pie for sure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and this set of stairs is actually, it's really kind of terrifying because it really consists exclusively of like single stones that jut out from the wall in ascending order. You have to step from stone to stone with nothing underneath each rock. Like you're, it's just these stones. And they aren't protruding out very far from the wall either. When I went down these steps, I was essentially like hugging the wall all the way down. But it's not because I'm afraid of heights. I don't, I don't know what you're talking I was about. Say, I was like, you are terrified of heights. So <laughs> there's that as well. That's very true. These steps are the ones in the 1995 adaptation. And you can get a real sense of the trepidation that the actors are having when they're performing this. And I realize, you know, they're acting. But at one point, you actually can hear one of the actors. I think it's the one who plays Henrietta. And she's just kind of like, ooh, I don't like it. Like, she's, it's just it's really subtle. I don't even know if if, um, if you have the closed captions on, if they'd even catch it. But you can tell that she's just kind of like, eh. It'd be interesting to know if that was in the script or if that was an ad lib that they kept in. Yeah. Oh, and I would buy it if it was ad lib because it's, they're not super easy stairs to navigate, in my opinion. And so if these are the stairs that Austin meant... Then I am telling you right now, Louisa Musgrove is a freaking daredevil. <laughs> I'm just going to hop around on these things. It's like, um, thank you, no. Because these are the most precarious stairs on the cob. There's a lot of people who are willing to argue that this is the set, that, that these are the stairs. A lot of people buy into that. However, Ooh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> these stairs weren't completed until 1816, less than a year before Austin's death. So it is a bit of a stretch to believe that she could have included them in her novel. At the same time, there's a lot of solid sources and scholars out out there who really defend this as these are the stairs in question. And even if they aren't the actual stairs, they're my favorite stairs. They're definitely the most memorable. um, And I'm sure it has nothing to do with my obsession with the 1995 adaptation. (laughs) I heart you, Kieran Hines. As somebody who knows Kieran Hines is a fan of this podcast and can just like, (laughs) just get like a little love note sent to Zan. Let's just make that happen. Okay, people? (laughs) It would make my world. Send that out into the universe. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So the final set of stairs, and again, depending on who you ask, 
probably the most likely, are the ones depicted in the 2007 adaptation. They are a single set that lean heavily into the wall of the upper cob. They are narrow and a bit uneven, so still believable as a set that could require assistance on and steep enough to be a bit treacherous. This set of stairs is also the set depicted by Hugh Thompson in 1897 in his illustration of the novel. I think these, the granny's teeth and this, this last set of stairs are the most popular and the heated kind of debate there. I'm personally a little bit excited to see which set of stairs the new adaptation of Persuasion uses, the adaptation with Dakota Johnson, Cosmo Jarvis, and, and Henry Golding. They've already filmed on this location, and so, you know, we can start placing our bets on which set of stairs they believe. <laughs> well, and then we've got that other Persuasion adaptation that's also supposed to be coming out. Oh, so, yeah. I don't like, know if they've done their filming yet, but yeah, we could, you know. Dueling staircases, Dueling staircases. Anybody? This is the sort of content I am completely here for. Like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So why, why do you think Austin was so invested in depicting Lyme in this like very vivid context for her novel? Well, we do know that Austin actually visited Lyme. So she had been there at least twice in her lifetime as a holiday location, once in 1803 and the second time in 1804. When she came to Lyme in the summer of 1804, Jane wrote to Cassandra describing what she had seen and done in the town, walking on the cob, dancing in the assembly rooms, enjoying sea bathing so much that she feared she overdid it, which I just love. <laughs> yes. And it's clear by her descriptions of the town in Persuasion that she really found a lot of beauty in the location, even though she was apparently quite unimpressed by her boarding house during the stay, which, fair. <laughs> you know, love Lyme, but, you know. Yeah, so, so I'm going to read... Um, a continued description of Lyme from the passage that we read at the beginning of the episode, because Austin actually goes on for some length at this. So here's, here's the continued description of Lyme. The scenes in its neighborhood, Charmouth, with its high grounds and extensive sweeps of country, and still more, its sweet, retired bay, backed by dark cliffs, where fragments of low rock among the sands make it the happiest spot for watching the flow of the tide, for sitting in unwearied contemplation. The woody varieties of the cheerful village of Uplime, and above all, Pinney, with its green chasms between romantic rocks, where the scattered forest trees and orchards of luxuriant growth declare that many a generation must have passed away since the first partial falling of the cliff prepared the ground for such a state, where a scene so wonderful and so lovely is exhibited, as may more than equal any of the resembling scenes of the far-famed Isle of Wight. These places must be visited, and visited again, to make the worth of Lyme understood. Like, this is actually, like, really highfalutin language in terms of scenery description for Austin. This is, this is the narrator. This isn't, I mean, we're kind of used to having someone like Marianne or Fanny, you know, waxing poetic about the landscape, but this is Austin's narrator. I mean, she's talking about romantic rocks, yeah. which is something I'm very into as a concept. Like, oh, what romantic rocks? <laughs> Green chasms between romantic rocks. Yes. This is this is so rare for Austin to be this excited about landscape when it's not somewhat kind of jabbing at one of her characters' perspectives. I think from this, we really are meant to understand that Austin really did enjoy her time at Lyme. This isn't a fake pose or a fake artistry that she's imposing on this. This is her very genuine reflections on her time in Lyme. And if you have ever been to Lyme, and specifically if you've visited the Cobb, we would love to hear about it and definitely share your photos with us. You can email them to us or share them online and tag us because, like I said, we would definitely love to see them. And speaking of that, you can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. 
Stay tuned for next episode, where we'll be talking about Emma's unfinished artwork with our next guest, Georgia Castilla. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.